Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Mom Daily for Thursday, October 24th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me at this podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer, Y Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. So it's been over a week since we've actually discussed film and TV news. Uh, luckily, we, we did kind of discuss some of it on the other podcasts, like the big Star Wars stuff, and we, we got to some, some of the Watchmen uh, news and info there. Uh, but we have a lot to discuss, so let's just dive into it. Uh, over this past week, there has been some changes over at Marvel Television, uh, specifically Marvel TV head Joe, uh, uh, Jeff Loeb, has uh, exited the company. I guess it's not all connected after all. HT, tell us about it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Jeff Loeb is leaving his position at Marvel TV. He was the Marvel TV head for almost a decade. Um, But since Kevin Feige took the lead as Marvel's chief uh, creative officer, that has led to sort of a split between Marvel Studios, Marvel TV, and, and has resulted in, as you said, Nothing being connected, despite uh, initial attempts to do that. Uh, Loeb is apparently in the midst of formulating an exit plan and will announce his departure uh, around Thanksgiving. So he was the force behind Marvel TV shows like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., as well as the Marvel Netflix shows like Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and The Defenders. But since the dissolution of... um, the Marvel Netflix sort of deal, uh, Disney Plus on its way with actual shows that are connected to the MCU and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. soon bowing its final um, bow. There it seems to be no place left for Jeff Loeb as he is, as Marvel Studios and Disney Plus take the lead. Yeah, and especially with Feige becoming the chief creative officer who's overseeing everything. He's now mm-hmm. the god of Marvel. But that makes me wonder, like, is Marvel TV, do, are they going to have a new head? Do we know that? Do we have any info? We don't have any info on that. Because um, I'm guessing none, Feige's here, yeah, like, right I feel like Feige's probably, like, stretched thin. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's mm-hmm. doing everything. So there must be someone that's going to head a TV. I'm wondering if it's going to be, like, one of the people in the Marvel, you know, Cinematic Universe brain trust. Like, uh, Josh Schwartz or one of those guys. Um, I don't know. We'll have to see how this turns out. But uh, it, it does definitely seem like the future of Marvel television is going to be – it is going to be connected, finally. So, yes. So that's good. Uh, okay, let's talk about Joker. Joker has become one of the biggest uh, R-rated films at the box office in history. Actually, it might even make as much money in terms of profit as Avengers Infinity War. Ben, how can this be? Yeah, that's kind of a shocking statistic, but apparently, according to Deadline, it is true. So they say that uh, once you factor in the global theatrical take, the TV and home entertainment windows and all, all that kind of stuff for Joker, this movie might actually end up making about four, they say actually at least $464 million. Uh, Avengers Infinity War made about half a billion dollars. So it's very, very close Uh, in terms of like overall profits for both of these movies, which, you know, Joker is, um, is, is no Marvel movie. We'll put it that way, but it's, uh, it's just, yeah, kind of shocking to me that I, I think it's obviously it's because 
Joker was made for something like $70 million and Avengers Infinity War had a much, much higher budget uh, and obviously made much, much more overall. But in terms of profits, that's how all of this shakes out. So it, it looks like Warner Brothers made a really, really good decision to uh, to make this Joker movie at a, a relatively smaller scale. I think Chris actually points out in his article that there were some rumors going around that Warner Brothers basically tried to lowball Todd Phillips out of making this movie altogether by saying, hey, we're, we're only going to give you, you know, X number of dollars to make this thing. And right. Phillips ended up taking the deal anyway. And then so it, it's like, <laughs> I guess Warner Brothers was kind of like probably bummed at that to start. <laughs> right, and then, I guess. And, and then now they're like, oh, all right. Yeah, this was great. So uh, sort of a weird turn of events for them. Well, Warner Brothers has been kind of trying to chase the Marvel Cinematic Universe and their their first attempts with the their DCEU or whatever they're calling it. Um, and now they're taking their own approach. And with this Joker film, I, I you know I always say on this podcast that Hollywood takes learns the wrong lessons from their successes. Like what what wrong lessons are they going to learn from this? Like I, I'm guessing they're not going to learn that they could make more cheap character centric uh superhero films right hmm um More I'm incel think, movies yeah <laughs> i'm trying to think of what the wrong lesson would be um we're gonna get the I, penguin like, next yeah there are so many wrong lessons that they could choose from because this is so associated with uh you know the batman mythos they could you know there's that period in the 90s where like um Tim Burton's Batman movie in what was that 1989 did super well and all of the studios were like all right what the kids are really into are comic book movies and and are movies based on comic books and serials from like the 1930s so let's make a uh you know the phantom and the shadow and Dick all that Tracy. stuff so like yeah exactly so that's like one did of Howard the, the duck come after that or um, was that before? I think that was right before. Okay. Um, but I, I think that's one of the sort of prime examples of what you're talking about, Peter, in terms of like learning the wrong lesson. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to extrapolate what they could do with Joker. Um, what What is the right lesson here? Like how how what if you were a studio exec in Warner Brothers and you saw the success of the Joker? Like how does that like inform your decision to proceed with the the rest of the what they're going to do with DC? <sighs> I mean, I think that's a little bit above my pay grade, but I, I think it's really <laughs> what we've talked about before already. Like the idea of, you know, doing lower budgeted stuff, but giving filmmakers the freedom to interpret characters or, um, you know, pieces of intellectual property that uh, that maybe we haven't seen before, like putting a an interesting spin on something that, you know, say what you will about Joker, but we've never seen that version of that story told before. So, uh, you know, continue with the freshness, continue. You know, and, and it, yeah, you that, know, that, that studio... movie is barely based on any comic book ever. Like right, there's right. really, there's like probably like one page of information from that, that could be gathered from any of the comics. Yeah. And I think that, that might be, you know, we're living in an IP driven world. So I think, um, I think we're going to see maybe if they take the the right lessons. And I don't even know if this is like something that's necessarily good for the state <laughs> of Hollywood or all of that. But I think with this movie doing this well, I think we're going to see more lower budget movies based on characters that we know before um, with directors who have a vision for them and say what you will about what those visions are. But uh, if the studio sort of backs away and lets somebody, you know, take a run at some of these characters that that people were familiar with, but put a new spin on them. 
I think for a, from a studio perspective, that's the right lesson to learn, probably. Do you think we're going to see a Joker sequel after it makes this much money? I would be shocked if Warner Brothers had the um, the uh, self-control to <laughs> not do that. So uh, yeah. I think, yes, I think we're going to see some sort of Joker sequel. I don't know if Joaquin Phoenix is going to come back for it because that would be... I don't know that that would be interesting to me if he decided, <laughs> you know what, I'm I'm doing this. Uh, I really love playing this character so much that I want to uh, to revel in this misery more. But um, well, he has said know. that he wouldn't be against it, which is something he's never said in the past. My, my, I guess the real question here, Ben, is if they make a Joker sequel, will it begin with the flashback to Bruce Wayne's parents dying? I mean, they have to have that in every single movie, so it probably needs to be in there somewhere. (laughs) I just, uh, I mean, and I'm sorry, not to even take this on more of a tangent, but uh, a lot of the, one of the big talking points that came up around Joker was this version of the character does not feel like the, you know, super intelligent mega villain that, you know, we know from the Batman movies. So what does a Joker sequel even look like if it's, if it's not that, because, I, I find it very hard to believe that Arthur Fleck could transition into, you know, somebody who is uh, going toe to toe intellectually with the world's greatest detective. So um, I'm just curious if they do make a Joker sequel and Joaquin Phoenix comes back, what the evolution of that version of that character looks like. I will say, I think there probably is something interesting to be done in a Joker sequel that doesn't reach the point of Batman, like uh, with the whole mob mentality and, uh, if Todd Phillips could actually look at today and try to say something about today in his movie <laughs> and not yeah. just do a wishy-washy kind of thing like he did with the first film. But uh, I don't know. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, but let's move on to Apple TV. They're developing a a small screen adaptation of Isaac Asimov's uh, sci-fi uh, series Foundation, and this is uh, we we have learned who's going to direct it, who's going to star in it. HT, what do we know? Yes, Apple has tapped Rupert Sanders to lay the foundation for its upcoming adaptation of the Isaac Asimov sci-fi classic. He will be helming the pilot episode of the ten episode series, which will star Lee Pace and Jared Harris. Uh, this will be Rupert Sanders' TV uh, direct- directing debut. Um, he last de- directed Ghost in the Shell, and he's known for films like Snow White and the Huntsman. Um, and uh, the film, the series will star Jared Harris and Lee Pace, as I said, uh, in an epic saga that chronicles the um, a band of exiles who discover that the only way to save the galactic, galactic empire from destruction is to defy it. Harris will star as Hari Selden, a mathematical genius who predicts the death of the Empire, while Lee Pace will star as Brother Day, the Emperor of the Galaxy. I say all these things without really knowing much about Foundation. I know it's one of the all-time sci-fi classics. Isaac Asimov is considered like the godfather of the sci-fi genre because of his work with Foundation, but I can't say that I know much about it. I know it's very dense and complex and decade-spanning, both in the story and with the publication of the novels, which began as a series, as a trilogy, and then uh, expanded to seven novels. But um, 
This is a story that Hollywood has been trying to make for years. Uh, first was Roland Emmerich with uh, a feature film at Sony in 2011, but then and those rights lapsed, and then HBO attempted to turn that into a series. Jonathan Nolan in 2014, um, and now Apple has the rights to it and will be attempting to bring that um, saga to life. I know you haven't read it, but why not, HT? I feel like this is just hearing about this this book over the years. It seems so up your alley. I know. I just never got around to it. Um, yeah, I just I don't have an excuse. I just never did. So, I mean, I just got around to Dune, which I really oh, yeah. enjoyed much more than I thought. So maybe at some point I'll get around to Foundation, which I hear is incredibly just like ambitious and dense and more when I was reading the Wikipedia page it was interesting to me because they were talking about how um it's Isaac Asimov took inspiration from the the demise of the Roman Empire to craft this piece and I was like okay that's interesting I always really like when sci-fi takes pieces of history and um uses that to mold its story or its structure so I am going to check it out at some point I don't I'm probably going to either buy it at a bookstore or um, finally get a library card and borrow it. But uh, yeah, it's, it does sound really interesting, and I, I should prepare before the Apple series comes out. What What is your feeling on Rupert Sanders? Like, I feel like he he was like this guy that did a bunch of like TV in commercials. He was a commercial director, and I loved mm-hmm. his commercial director uh, direction so much that like we featured uh, like like a compilation of some of his commercials on the site before he got uh, hired to direct his first feature film, Snow White and the Huntsman. And I was so disappointed by that. Uh, I have not even seen Ghost in the Shell. I've just heard so many bad things about it. Like, is he the right person to direct this project? I honestly can't confidently say that because, like you said, Snow White and the Huntsman was bad. And Ghost in the Shell was terrible. (laughs) And that was his one sort of brush with sci-fi, too. And he... The one thing he did well at with Ghost in the Shell is aping the really striking imagery and of the original anime film that, you know, itself was a classic and widely influential too. Um, but nothing else because it felt so much like a hollow shell of that original <laughs> sci-fi piece that it just was devoid of any message or um, anything that really warranted its existence. And, you know, it's it had so much controversy with the whitewashing, which I think was warranted as well. So I just don't really know how he will be able to sort of build this sci-fi world from scratch because I feel like he has before had some sort of, you know, foundation <laughs> go on. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I love how the puns just come naturally to you. Like they're unintentional and they just come out like you were saying it was a shell of a movie and <laughs> the foundation. Uh Yeah, I don't I don't spend hours brainstorming these or anything. <laughs> um but yeah, I just I don't really know if he will be the right choice for this, but we'll see, I guess. Okay, let's go from one big epic sci-fi series to another. Let's talk about the Avatar sequels. Uh, recently, Gemini Man hit theaters in high frame rate, 120 frames per second. And we thought that this was going to be kind of our first look at like the future because we had heard that av- the Avatar sequels were going to be shot in high frame rate. But it looks like James Cameron does not believe that uh, HFS is the future. Ben, what do we know? 
Yeah, so it's it's sort of an interesting thing. As you mentioned, there have been rumors for a long, long time that James Cameron was going to be shooting Avatar at or Avatar 2 and 3, 4, 5, whatever, at 120 frames per second, just like Gemini Man. But in a recent uh, conversation that he had with a, a group of journalists and uh, for, I think he was Pr um, promoting the new Terminator movie, which he's producing. They asked him about Avatar and the high frame rate situation. And he said, I have a personal philosophy around high frame rate, which is that it is a specific solution to specific problems having to do with 3D. And when you get the strobing and the judder of certain shots that pan or certain lateral movement across the frame, it's distracting in 3D. To me, it's just a solution for those shots. I don't think it's a format. That's just me personally. And then Here's where things sort of get interesting. He said, I think high frame rate is a tool to be used to solve problems in 3D projection, and I'll be using it sparingly throughout the Avatar films, but they won't be in high frame rate. So I think what that means is he is going to be using them when necessary, you know, based on because what basically what he's talking about there is like strobing and juddering is like when the camera moves, when it pans from left to right, for example, um, too quickly and with the frame rate uh, you know if there's only 24 frames per second sometimes you probably notice this when you're in movies if if you're tracking a subject or uh, the the image is is covering a bunch of things and and you sort of lose the image a little bit it gets sort of fuzzy and and difficult to see as the camera is moving it's That's like the, flickery it's almost yeah. like uh if you like throw your hand in front of your face and you like wave it by like how like you see flickers of your fingers moving by but not like a right and yeah. then this, this is like the least technical explanation of this uh, <laughs> phenomenon of all time. But just to try to get people to understand what he's getting at there, basically what he's saying is for these Avatar movies, he's going to use this high frame rate just in those shots to smooth that out a little bit. So so you don't have as much of that flickering and, and strobing effect. But the movies themselves will not be, um, you know, viewable or marketed in a high frame rate format. So it's not like. You know, with Gemini Man right now, depending on what, what theater you you go to, you can see it in 60 frames per second or 120 frames per second or whatever. It sounds like Avatar is just going to be or the Avatar sequels are just going to be uh, in 3D and that's it. And and the yeah. you know, you're not going to have the option for high frame rate, even though he is going to use that technology within the movies themselves. I think this is a little deceiving to say that because for you to experience and by the way, the um, it should also be said that. This whole high frame rate thing, like, you know, you might be saying, like, why why does James Cameron need this? If, like, we've done, you know, 100 years of cinema without high frame rate um, and we've seen action films and there's never been a problem before, why does he need high frame rate for the action scenes in Avatar? And the reason why is when you do 3D, uh, you can get – some people are susceptible to headaches when uh, you're seeing that choppiness of of an action scene and it can be disoriented and uh, you can get dizzy. Uh, so the high frame rate lets you follow it better and um, let you kind of lose the 3D too when, when you get to a point of like that choppiness. Um, so – but uh, the thing I was saying that's kind of deceptive is that for – that to be a fix for like those action snippets to be presented in high frame rate, it still needs to be projected from a high frame rate capable projector, right? Um, hmm. I that's a good question. I don't know how the projector works in that, or if it's because but, it's digital. You know, it's not. It's not necessarily. Isn't it how it's filmed versus how it's projected? Yeah, I think I think it's all done 
you know, like in camera, like on the day, on the production. I'm, I'm not sure how much it has to do with the the actual. Well, I don't know, because I, <laughs> I guess this is like too technical for for my um, yeah, for my uh, uh, frame of reference here, because I think there were a lot of discussions about whether theaters would for Gemini Man, whether theaters would be equipped to show it in the right way. And I guess that means that that because otherwise they could just send them a file that is like, oh, this is 120 frames per second file, and here, just show this using the technology, the the equipment that you have in your theaters, but that's not the case here. It's like certain theaters have to be outfitted with the equipment to show it that way. So I think I think what ultimately, what, yeah. what Cameron is trying to get at here is that <laughs> he's he may not even go all the way up to 120 frames per second when he's doing this stuff. He's just going to use a higher frame rate, I think, is what he's trying to say, because he doesn't specifically say, I'm going to shoot these, you know, I'm going to use the this uh, effect in 120 frames per second on the Avatar movies. I think he's just saying, I can increase the frame rate to help myself out, you know, in these moments when I need them. And there are a lot of movies where directors play with frame rate, you know, for different action scenes and and stuff like that. I remember like watching uh, The Count of Monte Cristo back in 2002 and there's this big sword fight scene that was shot in a different frame rate. So um, maybe it's just something along those lines. I'm just so curious what innovation these Avatar sequels are going to bring because I felt like, you know, that first one kind of, I mean, it wasn't the first 3D film, but it kind of was the first 3D film on that level of, like, making us consider 3D films. And I feel like yeah. for the Avatar sequels to, like, work, they also have to bring along some kind of cinematic innovation of that level. But if it's not high frame rate, what is it? And I guess we're I think to... the thing is just going to be the resurgence of 3D I, because it, you know, it came and went. So, you know, over the course of, what, five years or something. Yeah. And now, for all intents and purposes, 3D movies are just, you know, curios. They, they don't really exist in that same way anymore. And I think if Cameron has has done anything on the innovation side to get people excited about what we're going to see in these Avatar sequels, it's going to be in the 3D realm and people will take that format seriously again. And maybe there's another case of Hollywood learning the wrong lesson again, Peter, where yeah. the same cycle will just play out where people try to cash in on it again. But I think maybe those lessons have been learned and people will I don't just know. Move, move forward saying, OK, I'm only going to make a 3D movie if it fits this specific project and, and if people actually shoot it for 3D and like get rid of post conversions and all that crap that we dealt with, you know, the, the most recent time around. Yeah, you can't just have the filmmaker film it one way and be like, well, convert it in post. Like, the filmmaker has to artistically envision what this film is going to look like in 3D and how that's going to affect the story. But, um, right. okay, let's move on to Disney Plus. It looks like, uh, after all these years, we've been talking about a possible Hocus Pocus sequel, and it looks like one will actually be coming to Disney Plus after all. HD, what do we know? Yeah, Hocus Pocus 2 is in the works at Disney Plus, with um, Disney tapping Workaholics writer and co-producer Jen D'Angelo to write the script. Um, And she's also reportedly been tasked with bringing back the trio uh, that starred in the original series, in the original film, sorry, uh, Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy Najimy. No cast yet has been set for this a sequel or and there's no confirmation whether it'll actually be a sequel but if they bring it back bring back the original cast then potentially that will happen um but yeah it's it's all very in early works right now um there's no knowing whether uh 
Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy and Jeannie will be back. But they kind of made the movie the cult classic and the Halloween, Halloween rerun that it is. So I don't really know whether it will be um, as successful if they don't come back. But being on Disney+, Plus, I wonder if it will be a straight sequel or if it will be something like a new generation yeah, of uh, witches. Yeah. yeah, like a legacy sequel or something that's just even vaguely related, like the High School Musical, High School Musical um, yeah. series on Disney+. Plus. So who knows for now? We know some of the stars have been interested in a sequel. And you, you do make a good point. Like this wasn't a film that like did huge box office when it came out, but it, beca- it became kind of this like millennial cult classic of sorts yeah. from its showings on TV and whatnot. Uh, are, are, do you have a, a soft spot for Hocus Pocus? I like it. Um, I don't have quite the fondness that all my other millennial <laughs> cohorts do. Uh, I think it's because I didn't have cable growing up, but I watched a couple times and I always really enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, I understand why it's it's just like has such a place in everyone's hearts because it's it's nostalgic and it's funny and Bette Midler especially is just camping and hamming it up the entire time um so it it is really fun and like it's not a, you know, a great movie but it's just like a, a warm cup of egg well what do you drink at, at Halloween eggnog? or I don't <laughs> I was, know was uh, eggnog, pumpkin spice lattes pumpkin spice lattes <laughs> <laughs> that you drink um every Halloween so it's it's really I, I think the nostalgia speaking, but uh, if they do bring back Bette Midler, then like that that could possibly be the uh, the sequel that people have been waiting for. Yeah, you, you know th- this film was like so not a big thing that I was surprised. Like a few years back in Walt Disney World, they created a Hocus Pocus like show during like Halloween time. Uh, it's so they big, ha- yeah. yeah, so it, it's pretty big. And speaking of theme parks. Uh, Walt Disney World and Disneyland are going to be adding an update to Star Tours that will take us to the world of Star Wars Rise, the Rise of Skywalker. Uh, this, the info, information we're about to give you has been released by Disney, um, but it might be more spoilerific than you want to know about the planet that we see in the trailer. So if you want to tune out now, you're welcome to, but I, I really don't think it's that big of a deal but it does tell it does tell us what that planet is and it does tell us uh, a connection to one of the new characters so uh ben what do we know yes so in the trailers for the rise of skywalker we see that the remnants of the death star are basically submerged or half submerged in the ocean on some sort of mysterious planet a lot of people have been speculating about where that is but now the disney parks blog has confirmed that uh it's actually the ocean moon Kef Beer, K-E-F space B-I-R. Um, so again, you know, I'm not sure if that's the the real pronunciation or if somebody's going to come along and, and pronounce it differently in the actual movie, but that's the best I can do. And uh, yes, so what do we know about Kef Beer? It is actually the home world of Janna, who is the new character played by Naomi Aki in The Rise of Skywalker. So we don't know much about that character other than she's like a skilled warrior and she and a bunch of other people are riding on the backs of animals across what appears to be a starship in the most recent trailer. So that's kind of wild. Um, but we don't know really a much, you know, much about this moon at all. It looks like there's a lot of ocean there, um, but we don't know if there's like 
other land masses there where where she grew up and learned to train and all of that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm guessing the movie will get into that a little bit and maybe show us some more geography of this. Uh, I guess it's not a planet, but the ocean moon anyway. Um, but yes, the the new Star Tours uh, update for for that attraction will take us to that area uh, in you know on on the day that. Um, the Rise of Skywalker hits theaters. So December 20th, 2019, uh, guests to the Disney parks will be able to experience, uh, you know, in, a, in Star Tours randomized fashion, footage from uh, the the Homeworld Kef beer. Yeah, and uh, this is actually different than usual. Usually they have used this to as a buildup to these films, as a promotion for these films, and you get to experience it, uh, you know, in the month leading up to the release of the film. And this is coming after the release of Rise of Skywalker, so that's a little bit interesting. Maybe maybe there's uh, some spoilers here that they don't want to show until the movie is out. Uh, yeah. It, especially yeah. since this is like a late – we're assuming that this this planet appears late into the movie. It seems like it, right? Yeah, and they also say that uh, Star Tours The Adventures Continue will be adding new destinations, plural, inspired by the new movie. So this isn't the only place that, that is going to be uh, you know, popping up on the attraction. So um, we don't know what the other edition is but uh, or additions are, but keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, one last thing about Star, uh, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker before we go. Uh, we did learn with the tickets going on sale, we learned the running time. And this is going to be the longest Star Wars movie ever released? It is. 155 minutes or two hours and 35 minutes. So that barely makes it longer than the previous record holder of this franchise, which was The Last Jedi, which clocked in at two hours and 32 minutes. So we're talking a three-minute difference here. It's not not very much. But, uh, yeah, J.J. Abrams is, is taking the crown from Ryan Johnson in terms of, uh, you know, the longest Star Wars movie. Do Star Wars movies need to be two and a half hours? I mean, I, I guess the case could be made that if any of them do, this is the one to do it because it's the conclusion to the Skywalker saga and all of that stuff. It's it's, you know, the wrapping up all nine movies. Um, so I, I guess this this is the place to do it. I don't really want to see this become a habit because <laughs> I kind of feel like all movies should be between an hour and a half and two hours unless it, it really, really calls for it. Um, but uh, yeah, that's just me. I will say this, if you do look at Box Office Mojo, which just recently went through a horrific redesign to look like IMDb Pro, uh, and you look at the top grossing films of all time, most of them are like almost three hour long. Like that is a, a trend that I feel like, like, it does, like we always talk about, you know, the executives taking wrong lessons. Like, do you think they take that lesson or like, because it also seems like there's a poll to be like, if we make a film less than two hours, then we, or, you know, we make it 90 minutes, we can get two more showings in theaters a day and make more on opening weekend. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if it's just that thing where, you know, the longer the movie is, the more epic it is or, yeah. or can be perceived to be. And, and that means that it's a bigger draw for people like, oh, I have to see this in theaters instead of waiting because, you know, it's this huge sprawling story that deserves to be told on the big screen. And I, I think you could say that of a lot of the movies that occupy that space on the top of that list. I'm sure this won't be explored in the film, but I, I, I will say that I do think it is interesting that Jana grew up on this planet where the Death Star, like, basically crashed into, like, the ruins of the Death Star crashed into. I feel like that could make a good comic or book because I'm sure there were, you know, uh, people from the Empire. There was a war. You know what I mean? Like, that was not uh, an easy thing for that. Like, that 
where she grew up probably very uh, much influenced who she becomes and who we're going to see in this film. So I think that. Yeah. And like, who knows what what sort of like um, environmental effects that had of that thing crashing into the water? Like, you know, there could be there could have been a tsunami that wiped out an entire city or something. Um, And then also like the, the secondary part of that is like if this husk of a massive ship has been sitting there for whatever, 30 plus years you know that people have explored it before. So maybe it's like a callback to the first time we see Ray, you know, where she's exploring the, the sort of burned out husk of a, of an Imperial ship. So um, maybe Jana, Jana and her, uh, her <laughs> uh, compatriots uh, had a chance to, you know, explore those ruins as well. I don't know. Maybe we'll see that in the movie. Yes. Okay. Anyways, that brings us to the end of today's slash home daily. You can find more of all of our work at slash home.com. You can find links to all the stories you talked about on today's podcast linked in the show, show notes slash home daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at slash home.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.